1: fiction-nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that nearly every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
2: And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. Which we never talk about. What, my novel?
1: Yes! Seriously, we're doing an episode on recent unrest in Sri Lanka and Myanmar, and whether or not the rise of populist majoritarian politics in those countries and in other parts of Asia reflects what's going on in the rest of the world. Your novel is about Tamil immigrants in America and Canada, and the lives that they led in Sri Lanka before they immigrated, and yet, and you continue to write about Sri Lanka. We should have you as a guest.
2: I am not a guest, I'm a host. And we have really terrific guests this episode. A bit later, we're going to talk to William Lychuk, author of the novel The Wasp Beater, about the plight of the Rohingya in Myanmar. But now we're going to go to Colombo, Sri Lanka, to speak with Mira Srinivasan, the Sri Lankan correspondent for The Hindu, one of India's largest newspapers.
3: Mira, welcome to the show. Hi, Sugi. Good Mira, to connect.
1: Mira, thanks so much for being here. Uh, sorry to bring you in in the middle of, a, of an argument.
3: This is not an argument.
2: Mira has been on the ground in Sri Lanka. She knows what's going on there currently. I've just been freezing my ass off in Minnesota.
3: Well, your podcast does say you think everything in the news has already been dealt with in literature. News first, though.
2: Mira, you've been reporting in Sri Lanka. This is your second stint there for the Hindu. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about the recent attacks on Sri Lanka's Muslim community, specifically. And in and around Candy, I know the president declared a state of emergency and Facebook and other social media applications were blocked for a little, a little bit. That, that state of emergency was just lifted on Saturday at midnight, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened, the triggering incidents and what led up to it?
3: Sure. It all started on the 4th of March. There was this first manifestation of a series of violent attacks in Candy, targeting mosques, Muslim-owned shops and homes that Muslims lived in. So this was in a small town called Digana, and as you know, Kandy is in the Central Highlands and in one of the most beautiful and scenic parts of Sri Lanka. It's, uh, this particular town, Digana, is a mixed ethnic town with a sizable Muslim population living along with Sinhalese who are the majority, ethnic majority in Sri Lanka. What is said is that the whole incident, the episode was triggered by the death of a Sinhalese driver from the ethnic majority and in a nearby town. And his death was a result of a road rage incident in which four Muslim men beat him up and he later succumbed to injuries in hospital. So while it's said that this was really the trigger for this incident in Kandy, it's interesting to note that there was a similar state of attacks the preceding week, particularly on February 26 in the eastern town of Ampara, which is by the eastern coast of Sri Lanka. So this followed a controversy around a story which later was proved was fake, that a Muslim-owned restaurant was mixing sterilization pills um, into the food that was served to Sinhalese customers. So this was this bizarre story that set off violent attacks, again targeting mosques, Muslim-run shops, and homes. Eventually, after the candy attacks, the government in addition to the state of emergency, also decided to block social media for that reason. It claimed that a lot of panic and uh, rumor-mongering was contributing to the violence and escalating it. And, of course, there's a lot of criticism now about why the government chose to do that and how long it took for the government to restore Facebook, which is about a week. But uh, at some level, it seemed that without WhatsApp, without Facebook, without um, uh, Viber, The sort of rumors that were circulated all over social media were contained at some level, but the other side to that was that you did not get as many updates and stories from the ground, which you could perhaps later verify, but you were not getting as many updates from the ground.
1: So people thought maybe the government did this in part to prevent there being news coverage of what was happening?
3: Not just that, they also had this very um, strong criticism about the government's inability to monitor hate speech online. And Facebook, uh, the government has blamed Facebook for not responding enough to, um, you know, incidents of pages that sort of spew hate uh, were reported, but still Facebook didn't respond in time. But Facebook uh, in turn said they didn't have Sinhala speakers who could Uh, verify or check the content or the violence embedded in it so there was a bit of a debate around that and uh, I think civil society is a bit torn in terms of deciding whether they'd like the government to regulate this space more or get a private actor like Facebook to regulate this of course officials from Facebook flew into Colombo had discussions with the secretary to the president eventually uh, before eventually the ban was lifted.
2: This is so interesting, because, of course, I saw Rohan Samarajiva's op-ed in The New York Times, where he was also he was arguing, right, of course, that this isn't purely a social media issue. And a lot of people were comparing these attacks on the Muslim community to um, the anti-Tamil riots that took place in 1983 that were are commonly considered kind of the beginning of the Sri Lankan Civil War. Um, And that, of course, was kind of a pre-Facebook era when uh, kind of organized attacks on a particular ethnic group. You know, no one needed Viber to do that back then. So it was interesting to see his take on that, too. I wonder if you what you think about those comparisons.
3: Yes, Sugi, it's interesting you raised that, because as I was covering this violence in Ampara town, you know, that was the day when a whole bazaar was set ablaze, The all the shops were owned by Muslims. And I was at the spot covering this, and this gentleman, middle-aged gentleman, walked up to me and asked me who I am. And I said, in Tamil, I speak Tamil, and I told him I'm a reporter. And he said, look, what happened to you in 83 is happening to us right now. So that was a very sort of sharp and, um, you know, emphatic point that he made. I do think that they see this as part of a pattern because the incident in Kandy or the preceding incident in Ampara were surely not isolated, there is a trend in Sri Lanka that has to be uh, observed and reflected on. And the perception among Muslims is that they are being targeted actively, consistently, and perhaps with state patronage.
1: Could you just talk about, try to describe for us what it was like to be there when that bazaar was burning? Just what, what it... What the sights, what what was it like?
3: So I was there the day after um, the government declared an emergency. So on the outside, everything seemed calm, quiet. You did see, you know, sparse police and army presence here and there. And of course, as I said, this part of Sri Lanka is particularly beautiful. Sri Lanka is a very beautiful country and the Central Highlands, really are amazing in that sense. And once you enter the towns, you see that the shops are closed. There are, you know, you don't see people on the road. So everybody is sort of acknowledging the curfew and the need to be indoors. And there is active fear because this was the day after the incident in a neighboring town. So this particular day in Akurana, a small town, again, with a sizable Muslim community, the shops were ablaze and you saw police and army personnel surrounding the area. And you could hear a voice over a loudspeaker which perhaps belonged to a senior uh, religious leader within the Muslim community because he was appealing to fellow Muslims to be calm, to not resort to violence in response and to say that we have to respond and act very responsibly because we do not want to escalate tensions further. So it was this very... Um, fervent plea to fellow Muslims. And you also saw some of the shop owners sort of gathering around that area in utter shock. They just couldn't believe that this happened, more so because this came at a time when police curfew was already in place in the district. So they were like, why wasn't the police responding? I mean, what were they thinking? Didn't they anticipate this, that, you know, the violence could possibly spread and they were stationed here. And then the army was there, but not there at the spot soon enough to respond.
2: And for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with the 1983 anti-Tamil riots, to which I'm referring, those riots are um, somewhat well known in Sri Lankan history, in part because they were quite organized. um, And in the wake of the war, I would say, the common perception is right, the uh, Tamil insurgency has been defeated and that the sort of that the government in um, expanding its reach and consolidating its power in the post-war era um, was in some ways looking for another scapegoat. And there have been various analyses published sort of in that vein. And uh, a lot of people point to specifically a hardline Buddhist group called Bodhubala Sena or BBS. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that.
3: Sure, Suggi, you're right in that um, there is uh, a context to this rise in Muslim attacks that we see. The post-war, Sri Lanka civil war ended in 2009, May, and since then there is uh, an apparent triumphalism and euphoria among the most stridently nationalist sections of the Sinhalese society and the state in particular. So the, the attacks in Kandy had you know, precedence. From 2012 itself, so a very um, popular Muslim-owned apparel chain was attacked in 2012, around which time there was also this very shrill campaign by um, hardline groups against halal certification of meat that was exported. And at the same time, there was also this demand that the hijab be banned in Sri Lanka. So it's very interesting. Now, Muslims form about 10% of Sri Lanka's population, which is, I think, nearly 21 million. And they are essentially a trading community and perceived to be sort of affluent, siding with the government of the day. That's the sort of popular perception among many, many Sinhalese. And we should also remember that the Muslims had a particularly um, damaging episode in the 90s when the LTT in the north had forcefully evicted them overnight from the north, from Jaffna, and they had to be, you know, resettled in other parts. And much of that baggage and history is still yet to be addressed. So we're talking of a community that has seen similar violence, similar antagonism from another fellow minority group in the 90s. So post-war, it's interesting how sort of the Sinhalese, the strident nationalists turned towards the Muslims, as perhaps seeing a new enemy, a new other that they needed to target. And this also coincides with the rise of Bodhubala Sena and similar groups, which are apparently fringe groups, but wielding considerable political power, considerable influence in political discourse. So it's interesting how this group rose at the time when the former president Mahindra Rajapaksa was in power. And um, there are allegations that This group enjoyed the support of his administration, of course he's denied it, but we do have evidence of his brother going and opening their office in Colombo, and similar sort of incidents, but um, the Bodhubala Sena as a group was really emboldened those years, and what was also worrying is, there was this very obvious impunity enjoyed by the saffron rope that, you know, monks would be seen participating in attacks, monks would be seen instigating hate speech very actively, but they would just remain untouched. I mean, they do still remain untouched. That's, that's uh, in some sense, also indicative of a certain continuity, uh, even after regime change, especially after this regime considered more liberal and perhaps secular in some sense, didn't act very differently in these respects. And you do also increasingly encounter this narrative from a lot of uh, Sinhalese and also sections of Tamil Hindus, that, oh, there could be a rising fundamentalism in the eastern province of Sri Lanka, which is home to many Muslims. So um, Muslims, of course, counter that, saying that this is more cultural, not so much religious. And look, we've never resorted to violence. We don't have history of violence in Sri Lanka. But, you know, all this together sort of gives us a sense of how this could be, uh, as a Muslim minister recently told me, a very local manifestation of what we see globally uh, in terms of Islamophobia.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. And look, you know, and this fits right into what we're trying to talk about, about not just Islamophobia, but how populism might work uh, on, and it's starting to spread in a global sense, nativism. Uh, but just for, uh, I mean, I'm here with two people who write and know a lot about Sri Lanka. and So I feel like my job is to be the person who is the non-expert in Sri Lanka. So just to clear if, for all readers, I want to talk about how the religious and ethnic parts of this dispute line up, right? So there are two major ethnic groups, are the Tamil and the Sinhalese. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now
2: and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your
4: happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline.
1: Who are the Buddhists? Who are the Muslims? What's the typical religious choice of someone who's Tamil, like you, Sugi? Uh, And what form does populism take there?
2: Some portion of Tamils are Hindu. They're also Tamil Christians. Uh, The majority of Sinhalese are Buddhists, but they're also Sinhalese Christians. Um, caste operates in many of these communities, which I think is also important to note. Um, There are Eurasian populations, um, some of which have migrated into, like like many other Sri Lankan populations have migrated. Uh, The Burger community, there's an indigenous community. So there's sort of a lot of other minority communities other than the Tamil and even the Muslim community who are often not part of the conversation, but are very much part of the fabric of life in Sri Lanka. I grew up a Hindu, um, and I think now I would identify myself as an atheist Hindu, which a professor of mine told me was a possibility, which I was very excited about. <laughs> um, in terms of in terms of populism, you know, we've been talking Can about like be an Singalab-
1: Christian? Does that work?
2: I don't I don't know. I don't, I don't know. You got you're gonna have to take that up with your professors. Honestly. But uh, um, like Mira was before talking about like the notion that we were trying to, that there, there's sort of this search for another other. And I think in an earlier era, there was like an, a lot of analysis of how Singla Buddhist chauvinism um, and Tamil nationalism were sort of reinforcing each other. And Buddhism has a a place in the Sri Lankan constitutions. It has the foremost place. It's, it's the state religion. So um, protecting that and preserving that and sort of the notion that Um, Sri Lanka is a special place for Buddhism and a place where a unique form of Buddhism exists is the engine behind certain kinds of populist rhetoric, for sure.
3: It was a very, very central point to the arguments around the new constitution that many of the uh, political forces within the Sinhala Buddhist um, spectrum did want uh, a constitution that again reinforced Buddhism with a foremost place in it. And there was a lot of resistance to it because people who have been in Sri Lanka, who have sort of, you know, seen what this sort of equation has done in the past, are very keen that they have something closer to a secular constitution. In fact, some are even willing to say, okay, you give a special place to Buddhism and qualify it saying all other religions will be treated with equal respect.
1: Could we talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned him already, Mahinda Rajapaksa, as a political figure, I mean, he's not the president now, but he was the leader of the government up th- from 2005 through 2015. He was in charge at the time at which the the decades-long civil war between the Tamil Tigers and the Sri Lankan government ended in 2009. There was a huge number of civilian casualties at that at the end of that at the at that civil war. I mean, is is he similar to some of the other politicians we've looked at on this podcast, like Poland's Jaroslaw Kaczynski? Are there comparisons to be drawn between Poland's nativist Law and Justice Party and Roger Paskas' government?
3: Yes, I think there is a there is a pattern that is um, difficult to miss among sort of you know these strong leader figures that we see in different parts of the world today: Turkey, Russia, the United States today, India under Modi, and Sri Lanka under Rajapaksa. So there are interesting patterns. About Rajapaksa, to start with, I must say he is a particularly charismatic and popular leader. And when I say charisma, it's really about his ability to connect with his constituencies in very, very um, important ways. People really see and feel this connect. So he, we're talking about this leader who's able to, you know, get his hands dirty and go to the ground, meet people, you know, pick up their babies. Sri Lanka is in this very interesting phase where its first national unity government is in power. The Sri Lanka Freedom Party and the United National Party who were traditionally rivals. And Mahinda Rajapaksa is a member of the Sri Lanka Freedom Party or SLFP, which is held by President Maitri Palasiri Sena. But he sits in opposition in parliament with the support of about 50 parliamentarians and effectively challenges this government on every initiative, on every move. So he contested the recent local polls as a separate force backing a new party and emerged so victorious that he got about 240 of the 341 local bodies, pushing the UNP to the second spot, rather distant second spot, and the SLFP front led by Siri Sena to a very sort of worrying third spot. So he still has that political uh, Uh, power and the mileage from the recent election has emboldened him further and he has now set his eyes on uh, 2019 and 20. Of course, he can't come back as president because the amended constitution doesn't allow for a third consecutive term to a president, but he can come through parliament and the parliamentary elections are scheduled for 2020. So, Uh, In terms of political reconfiguration, the last couple of years have seen a lot going on in Sri Lanka, which also sort of contribute to other uh, social and economic changes that we see.
2: A friend of mine wrote in with a question. I mean, we're talking about populist movements and she was curious to talk about how populist movements have been embedded in and also operate in collusion with and inside international human rights discourse and practice. specifically, she was she mentioned Myanmar and, and Sri Lanka.
3: I wanted to mention this earlier, but it slipped my mind, which is that um, there was a lot of resistance to Rohingya refugees coming into Sri Lanka. In fact, there was a um, monk led attack on a UN safe house in September 2017 that was uh, sheltering Rohingya refugees. So there's this visible resistance that's growing, which is not countered by a sort of um, responsible uh, state mechanism. So it's interesting that these forces remain emboldened. And it's very difficult to see how there could be a reliable accountability mechanism in a system within um, which you know, the main sort of state is so reliant on these forces for its own electoral um, gain, so and political expediency. So, it's, it's I don't see they how can't it account- repudiate
1: them in essence, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's why you notice when in Charlottesville, uh, in America, Trump says, Well, there were good people on both sides, he can't really quite totally bling him, bring himself to repudiate the white nationalists on the alt-right because he understands that some certain base of his power, or maybe a very crucial large base of his power, comes from that movement. Is that similar to what you're talking about?
3: Definitely. And the other thing which I think connects all these uh, contexts in a certain way is the sort of economic situation in which the majority population lives in. To give you an example, I went to Teldenia, this other town in Kandy, where this Sinhalese driver who was murdered hails from. So his family is this working-class family in abject poverty, living in a very, very modest dwelling, where the roads to his house are still, you know, rickety. So that's the context he comes from. And his family sort of says, "Okay, we are Sinhalese, we are supposed to be the main ethnic group in this country, and none of our leaders speaks up for us. Look, when there's something that's wrong... Um, you know, for the minorities, the international actors step in, the media come. So what about us? Look at the lives we lead. So there is this sort of disgruntlement about, you know, everyday living, bread and butter issues, economic concerns that the states are somehow unable to address. And then nationalism sort of plays into their hands so easily. And it seems that, This is the only rhetoric that makes sense to families like that. Okay, we are in this situation because of these other people.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think in listening to you talk, right? The Sri Sri Lankan military got bigger after the end of the war. And um, one of the things that friends and and, uh, analysts would consistently point out to me was that, right, where was the military drawing from? Like often people who really needed a military paycheck, who were in some sense economic conscripts, who were... Um, perhaps far from their homes, that the Sri Lankan military was making up a a distinct portion, was being integrated into the economy in certain ways. You know, for example, in the North, that the military was doing things that in sort of a pre-war era certainly would have been civilian jobs, you know, building roads, selling vegetables, running resorts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So that being a way that those um, economic concerns are being addressed, but sort of in an, in, an, in an odd way, in a way that's perhaps not sustainable. Um, and certainly that doesn't hew to the principles of what one hopes a democracy might end up being.
1: Well, those answers should definitely make uh, our listener who wrote in wanting to talk about the economic conditions that inform populism very happy. Um, I, I wanna, but here, <laughs> I want to take this back now to literature. Sugi? In your novel, Love Marriage, it turns out that the narrator's uncle, Kumaran, is a Tamil tiger. He's a wanted man, but he's also a loved man. As critical as you've been of the Sri Lankan government's attempt to erase civilian casualties at the end of the Civil War, which you've written about in Granta, an article we'll link to on on our show page, you're also very frank about the tactics the tigers themselves used. Could you talk to us a little bit about how difficult it is to get to the truth in a dispute where all sides are so convinced they're right? And maybe read a little bit from your novel.
2: So this is from my novel, Love Marriage. When the conflict begins must depend, like everything else, on the memory you acquire. First, who are you asking? To read the story in the press is to read a story that has never gone far enough. Ask one relative, and this is how the story begins. The International Tamil Conference came to Sri Lanka, and the government wanted it to be held in Colombo, which was the capital of the country. The Tamil organizers wanted it to be held in Jaffna, the northern city, which was their capital, and so they declined to move it. At the opening of the conference, some government soldiers came and shot some young Tamil men. Almost all of them died, and this was what sparked the beginning of the actual violent rebellion, this blatant killing. Whereas before, there had been quieter violence or discrimination. Those who attended the conference were mostly young men, young aspiring politicians who grew into old men with old memories of their friends who were killed. If you ask someone else, they will tell you a different story, say that the Thummels were making it all up, that there was no discrimination, that the island was an island of three languages and cultures, and that those cultures were equal before the tigers began killing people, including their own. Ask another and another. None of the stories will be absolutely complete, but their tellers will be absolutely certain. This is how we make war. So
1: I wonder, I was thinking a lot when I was reading your novel, which I love, um, and listening to that passage again, you know, writing about this war in fiction, this civil war, it's a little bit like trying to imagine somebody writing about the American civil war immediately after it happened. I don't really think that there was a successful novel about the war, maybe until Stephen Crane's Red Badge of Courage. So what has been the reaction, what's been like for you to try to write and parse and think about this war and and how have readers reacted to it?
2: Um, well, I think, you know, I actually wrote this novel before the war ended and then was in the very curious um, and thank God not replicable position of touring with the book while the war was ending. I think that, you know, people were sort of, especially Sri Lankans, were often in the audiences just very um, possessed with an urgency that I had never seen before and that I couldn't have anticipated because when I was writing the book, I didn't, I I, I did not grow up imagining really that the war would end, actually. So um, it was curious to be involved in conversations with people who, of course, um, you know, cared about were, were stakeholders in that conflict and often were new to a tradition of, I don't know, contemporary fiction in some cases, you know, there were, there were people at readings who might never have been at readings before. Uh, there were people, I mean, I remember, you know, I was at the Gall Literary Festival in Sri Lanka and I, I don't know if I was the only Thummel writer that year, but, but I might've been. And, um, having a realization that I was sort of, um, you know, there was a lot of vilification of the Thumbel diaspora and some of it made a lot of sense. The Thummel diaspora, uh, certainly there was a, a considerable faction that was very pro Thummel tiger. A lot of funding for the Thumbel tigers came from the Thumbel diaspora. And here I was a Thummel diaspora kid sort of in the flesh, um, right at the end of the war at the Gal Literary festival and sort of didn't quite realize, um, what it would mean to be a minority again in that context, which was not exactly comfortable. Uh, It was interesting, and I learned stuff, but it wasn't comfortable. So I think the timing of that was really um, probably an experience that I will never repeat, and that might be fine with me.
1: That's amazing. That's the first time I've ever heard that story. Thank you. Amira, what about India? All this is happening right off your country's coast. The current Indian government has recently been very friendly with the United States' own nativist populist President Donald Trump. And Donald Trump Jr. keeps going over there and the Hindu rights on the rise. Is India seeing a similar rise in populism or nativism or anti-Muslim activity at this time?
3: Definitely. I think the last few years in terms of escalated tensions with Pakistan and how that is portrayed in India by the government and by its supporters and also a lot of... um, concern over uh, rising anti-Muslim rhetoric attacks. There were lynchings around consumption of beef, which, um, I mean, the slaughter of uh, meat was banned in several states. I also realized, Whitney, I forgot to mention this while speaking about Sri Lanka. You asked me about the riots, the scene of riots. So that really left me with one very, very important question, which is, that how do you make sense of it, allowing for these multiple realities and narratives, right? So, at one level, there are these Muslim shops, Muslim homes and mosques being attacked clearly by Sinhalese groups, right? And um, even the government minister has recently said that all these attacks seem pre-planned. And um, in such a context, it was... It was quite humbling also to see how individuals were interacting with each other so most of these towns are mixed ethnic neighborhoods so at one level people would say look locals were involved in the attack because there's no way outsiders could recognize our shops as being muslim distinct from Sinhalese own shops at the same time many of the muslim families that had been targeted were living with Sinhalese neighbors. Sinhalese were sheltering them, and you hear a lot of these stories, even from the 83 riots. So he would know better. So you do hear these narratives. So among people, there is definitely not that sort of uh, obvious antagonism or hostility. They do see commonalities. They do appreciate coexistence in ways that you know rhetoric or sort of fancy analysis can't capture sometimes it's so difficult to reduce this to sort of assimilate this soon enough to get some grand reading. So that's what all of us grapple with, I think.
1: Well, it's one of the reasons that we appreciate writers like you uh, doing the kind of reporting that you do and novelists and and, and journalists like Sugi doing the kind of writing that she does. Uh, Mira, thanks so much for coming on that Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. We recommend readers check her work out at The Hindu and we'll provide a link to her stories when our show page goes up at lithub.com.
2: I've been reading Mira's reporting for years and I'm very picky about the stuff that I read on Sri Lanka and there's a lot of stuff that I don't like. And I think Mira's really, really great at covering Sri Lanka. And I just would point people to her work as a continuing resource. Um, and I am really appreciate your taking the time to join us.
3: Oh, thank you, Suki. That's very kind of you and means a lot coming from you who understands this place so well. And thank you, Whitney. It was really nice to chat. And one small clarification to readers who may not know, the name of the Hindu, since we've spoken so much about Hindus and Muslims and Sinhalese, I must tell you, doesn't come from the religion. It comes from a time when uh, the paper was launched uh, around the independence movement in India, and India is referred to as Hindustan. Uh, So, Hindu comes from that and it does not have anything to do with religion because this is a clarification that sometimes I give because they ask me who I am and I say, I'm Mira from the Hindu and they're like, oh, you're Mira and a Hindu. No, I'm... Just
2: That seems important to clarify.
1: And now we're so pleased to bring on Bill Lajcek to talk about Myanmar and the questions of populism there. Bill is the author of a story collection, The Architect of Flowers, and a novel, The Wasp Eater. He has been an NEA fellow and an Isherwood Foundation fellow and teaches creative writing at the University of Pittsburgh. He has traveled frequently to Myanmar and has written for the American Scholar, about it for the American Scholar among others. Welcome, Bill.
4: Thank you, thanks for having me.
2: Bill, when you and I met at Yaddo in 2012, you were deep in thinking about Myanmar. When you wrote letter from Burma, captives of the junta for the American Scholar back in 2008, you've been to the country four times. And I think since then, you've maybe gone back another six times, is that right? What drew yeah. you to Burma and what's kept you going back there?
4: Yeah, I've been um, 12 times now, I think. Um, and if you laid all the visits out, I think it's two calendar years in country. Um,
1: wow.
4: And I don't know. It's hard to say what brings me back. I'm, uh, I have an affinity for the country, obviously, and the religion and the, my friends there. Um, but there's also a sense that I don't understand the place at all, and I'd rather be the kind of person that digs one well 100 feet deep than 25 foot, foot deep wells, if that makes any sense. We're actually going back, my son and I, um, back in April to become monks again, um, so that's that'll be our 13th trip, I think. Wait, to what? Uh, that's what I do when I go there now. Um, I join the monkhood for a temporary monk, to become a temporary monk, and my son is a novice, and we... Um, We spend time in the villages collecting alms and spending time in monasteries. It's interesting that you say the thing about the
2: 25 um, foot deep wells. Um, I repeatedly go to a few places and. um, (laughs) I was just thinking about the
1: podcast, like we're like 25, we're like 10 inch well diggers basically (laughs) every two weeks. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> we we are. And we are in some ways. But I think like this might be this might be the second or third episode where we're touching on something about populism or majoritarianism. That's true. Um, Making some
1: progress with that. Well,
2: so someday someday we'll someday we'll get we'll get three feet. But I think. Um, It is interesting because sometimes when, I mean, when I go back to the same place repeatedly, Sri Lanka, there are a couple of people who always ask me, like, how can you keep going back there? Don't you want to go someplace new? Um, So maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I have that in common with you. Can you read a
4: little bit for us from the essay from The American Scholar? Sure. Another of the many dark jokes here, another joke that is not entirely a joke in Myanmar, is how everyone in the country lives under house arrest. It almost goes without saying, but the recent renewal of An San Suu Kyi's sentence strikes most people as inevitable. They resign themselves to her situation, just as they resign themselves to the rolling blackouts of the city, the rain-flooded streets, the heavy delta heat of the summer, the lady, as she's widely known here, confined to her home in Rangoon for 12 of the last 18 years. It's impossible to overstate the love and respect she engenders in people here. Her father... General Aung San negotiated independence for Burma in 1947 and was assassinated later the same year at the age of 32 when his daughter was only two years old. She grew up in Rangoon, attended English Catholic schools for most of her childhood in Burma, graduated from Lady Sri Ram College in New Delhi, her mother serving as ambassador to India and Nepal at the time. Aung San Suu Kyi went on to earn a degree in philosophy, politics and economics from St. Hugh's College of Oxford University in 1967. She took a position in New York as Assistant Secretary, Advisory Committee on Administrative and Budgetary Questions for An Wu Tant of Burma, who was then UN Secretary General. And in 1972, she married Michael Harris, a scholar of Tibetan culture, gave birth to a son the next year in London, and to a second son in 1977.
1: So we're in a whole new world here since you wrote this piece. Uh, I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi is, is now free. Uh, and while she was held up as an example of a great leader before her release, after what has happened to the Rohingya in, in Myanmar, some critics are attacking her as a sellout. Some Australian lawyers are attempting to prosecute her for crimes against humanity.
2: And when you and I were emailing a little bit about this episode, um, I was starting to to think, you know, I've been pretty disappointed in her, but I also think that military rule must be hampering her in ways I don't understand, so I'm really curious for your take on how power works in Myanmar today, because I think, you know, out here, human rights discourse is um, dominating the conversation, and inside the country, I'm not convinced that sort of a traditional approach is necessarily helping, Um, so I'm curious what, what you think about how it's portrayed and what's going on.
4: It's a huge and nuanced um, question or problem, and I don't want to be an apologist for the the, the country itself or for the situation, because I think it's horrific. But it's by no means, I think, as simple as like, Nicholas Kristof would make it in the New York Times. Um, it's, I think, by my understanding, and I guess I'm just a person who's gone there, um, I don't have any in, extra insights into this, but it seems to me she doesn't have... The actual political power to, to do anything um, substantive, to change the policy that the government is doing to the Rohingya. I've always been disappointed that she hasn't spoken out more forcefully at times. Um, but there's got to be something holding her back against doing that to keep her coalition together. There's no, there's really no leaders behind her. Um, after she's gone, it's there's a, a I feel a like that power vacuum for the NLD. Um because that entire generation from nineteen eighty eight through all the this the, the the next revolutions has all been prison, imprisoned or their lives have gone on. They've they've become exiled, they've gone out of the country. Um and I think she just has very little levers, very few levers of power. And um, a lot of this what happens to the Rohingya is happening in the remote Rakhine state, which most people in Burma don't have access to. Um, and you you would not be allowed to go anywhere near there if you were just traveling in the country. Um, so well, Why not? Go ahead. Oh, it's just the borders, you couldn't get past the borders. There are signs that no visitors are allowed unless you have papers. Whenever you stay in a village, you have to have special papers. Um, as a visitor, you're monitored um, wherever you go. That sounds a little um, so ominous you, to me. It seems still different to me that the, it's not necessarily all the, the people who are doing this, but it's the government itself that's doing a lot of the um, the, the genocide, essentially. Um, and again, I think the people feel hugely powerless um, and still have to believe in Aung San Suu because without her, they, they don't have a hope. She is the vessel into which they've put all their hope and, and democracy until the last 50, 40 years almost.
1: Well, what I'm trying to figure out from what you're saying is like if she she's the civilian she's the head of the civilian state, right? So you're saying like she just lacks the levers of powers to stop this genocide from occurring. But what would those be? I mean, what would she you know, why can't she control the military? Why can't she there, stop this from happening?
4: It'd be votes in their, their Congress, their Senate. Um, and the military have guaranteed a, a, a majority just by the way that the Constitution is written, they they maintain a majority, so they will always have complete control over the, the way things go. The only thing she could do is speak out publicly, but I wonder, I don't know what the situation is and how much she would sacrifice her own power. So and the civilian uh, head of government
1: doesn't control the military in the way that the U.S. president yeah. does, for instance. I mean, yeah. in other words, we don't, the U.S. president wouldn't have to ask Congress for, or the representative elected body to... For permission to do things with the military, other than by
4: my by my understanding, it's not even remotely the same.
1: Oh, no. uh, okay. Um,
4: yeah. So, so she gets a lot of bad press for this, um, but it's under and, it's, and it is understandable. But I think she has to be delicate, and she's been out of power for so long. And the generals are very smart in an evil way. Um, they have kept control for close to sixty years now, um, and. They've impoverished the people. The people. Um, every revolution that's happened in the country has taken. It's been because of economics, the demonetization of the currency, or the spike in cooking oil and cook, in motor oil prices. Things that the economic rules and in the, in the rules of the game no longer hold up. So people are used to making a living, used to make you know having family, providing for their kids. Um, and then the, the, game, the rules of the game change, and they, that's when the revolution starts. So the, the government just keeps them at a certain place, I don't know if this is making sense, but it keeps them at a certain place where they're always scrapping to make a living and get ahead and be moderately happy. Um, so they don't have a lot of extra time to devote to um, political things in some ways.
2: So I suspect that most of our listeners uh, are at least somewhat familiar with the situation of the Rohingya. But I just just in case, for those who don't or, or are not familiar with that situation, can you talk a little bit about the position of the Rohingya within Myanmar? Because I mean, one of the things I'm remembering about um, Aung San Suu Kyi is that, I mean, writes the term even... Even talking about the Rohingya as a particular population, right, like they've been, by some people in Myanmar, they're considered Bangladeshi, I believe, or, right, there's sort of a question of where do they belong? Are they, they're sort of considered, in the country, they're considered not that they don't belong. Um, and yet they've been there for really, that as a people, they've been there for a really long time.
4: They've been recognized since 19, the early 40s, when the country was um, gained independence so they they've been there for a long time they're a minority um, largely muslim some hindu um, i think the population was around two million um, usually all in the rakhine state which is to the far west toward bangladesh of the country um, away and again it it's hard to overemphasize it's a little like sri lanka it's hard to overemphasize how difficult it is to travel within the country so it's um to travel west to east is would be a day trip just to go 50 miles. Um, so it's these are very hard terrains. These are very remote areas. Um, the Rohingyas have been persecuted, um, and they're the there's you know as as a visitor to Burma, you hear all kinds of stories, and you hear um, how do I say this Some stories about. Ethnic strife between the Buddhists and the Muslims, and the the fear that most a lot of many Buddhists have for the Muslims who traditionally do most of the slaughtering and most of the um, killing of animals for the Buddhists um, have the tools to kill. There are no guns in Burma, if you re- remember. So there's always that constant fear, and then there's talk about lack of assimilation between um, the cultures. Um, but I've gone through villages where literally every mosque was being burned to the ground and just watched the the, the military and police standing by as the people were tearing down the, the mosques. Um, so you've
1: been in places where this was happening.
4: Yeah, but not in the Rakhine state. This would just happen in driving through villages. Um Seriously, like what year was that? Uh This was two years ago. Wow. Um, and... It was horrible, but here's another thing. I think that part of it is fomented by the government, um, so and is is allowed by the government so that they they can do their other business, if you will. Um, and cool. so they'll stand by. And I, there's a lot of talk. Like most of the people starting the riots are not just citizens, but are military people who are dressed as civilians. Um, and the same with the, the, the Buddhist monks who the old joke is um, the, that's not a monk, it's a general in a robe. Um, so a lot of monks, they may seem to be Buddhist, but they're not truly Buddhist, if if you know what I mean.
1: Um, well, I mean, that get back, gets back to that idea, <laughs> this idea of, uh, I mean, that's a typical populist um Trick, right? You know, you maintain and consolidate political power by defining an other and then sort of isolating them and then riling up your populace against them, so they won't be thinking about what you're doing. They're going to pay attention to the to the to the defined other, right? The, right. You know, this is what's ha- happened in Sri Lanka, but it's happened in Poland. It's happens. It's happening in right. America to a certain extent. You know, does it? So this seems very similar. It seems to follow a very similar pattern.
4: Absolutely, and it helps to give Ansansuki. Clay, clay feet, you know, so it, the more she's diminished in the West's eyes or, or and even in her people's eyes, um, the more power the, the military government has or the, the more legitimacy they have, it seems to me. I mean, again, I'm just a person that I don't, I'm not a government person, I just go there. I, I love the country, I, there's a spirit of, uh, an aura of spirituality to the place that I adore um, and I have very dear friends there. Um, but this is just stories you hear um, as you sort of pass through the streets and um, eat and drink together, as you, if you will.
2: It sounds like you're saying a little bit that from this great distance, I think a lot of people are are damning Aung San Suu Kyi. And, you know, I think certainly I've been among the people who have been critical of her. But it sounds like she's got far less freedom to move and has to kind of endure that those limits without people really understanding what they are, which must be pretty horrible, actually. Um, I was reading about um, a meeting of Asian leaders going on right now in which she apparently brought up the situation of the Rohingya. So I don't know, it's, it's interesting listening to you, I, I have slightly more sympathy for her. But it's also true that she's been among the people who, for example, like I know, when people are kind of batting around the terms um, to be used for the Rohingya, she was one of the people sort of saying that they were not Um, they were not of the country. I mean, as someone who writes about Sri Lanka, like I'm sort of trying to balance every sentence so perfectly, which I also know is automatically impossible. Yeah. I'm curious about like what sorts of difficulties you've encountered writing about it.
4: Oh, it becomes harder. It's the old joke. Um, Go to a country for a week, write a book. You've heard this one before. Um, Go to a country for a month, write an article, an essay. Go to a country for a year, never write anything. Um, <laughs> I haven't that heard sense, that one actually. Yeah. Um, so there's that sense of the just the the deepening of the mystery of it all, and so so to I, I always balance everything, and I ultimately have to to acknowledge my outsiderness of from the culture itself, um, my deep. Thirst to be part of the culture, but never being part of that culture, and somehow turned that deficiency into a secret strength or a gift curse, if you will. Um, like, try to teach about the Buddhism or about the um, the culture itself and what the culture has to offer us. Because even in when the Hunta was in power, there were certain things—not to romanticize it—but that preserved the country from the West. And now that the the country is open economically. Um a lot of the pressures that that are coming in be it from the Chinese or the, the West um, have changed the culture in the last five or six years in ways that are hard to um hard to owe a stomach. Um because there was a there was a real beauty. There was maybe there weren't economic choices for people, but they could give to family their their ties to community were were just deep. Um families lived together they weren't disparate all over um all over the world if you will it's it so it, again not to romanticize poverty but for B- buddhists is, is also that double-edged sort of like you can test your equanimity f- through the oppression and knowing that this will change and this is part of your test and this is um so in some ways buddhists are the perfect people to subjugate and because um, it is it can be part of your practice if you will um
1: so, what do people who are practicing Buddhists uh, in Myanmar, who are your friends or people that you know, think about the, you know, Buddhist government and and let and military who are executing these crimes?
4: Well, I don't think that they really think it's a Buddhist majority, obviously, but I don't think that they think of the government as Buddhist. Um, I huh. think the the generals will have put the cloak of Buddhism on just because it's politically savvy to do so. Um, and I don't think many of them, I don't, again, I just have to trust my own friends and acquaintances there, but none of them trust the, the more um, antagonistic monks that are rabble rousing down in the South either. In newly there's a group of monks that just, uh, where it Orwell shot as an elephant that they, they are just the real, um, antagonist in a lot of these discussions. but um, So they recognize like there's a
1: fragmentation going on in the Buddhist community, mm-hmm. uh, just like there, you know, has been a fragmentation in the Christian community, you know.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they would say not, sorry, I think they would say there always has been, and there always have been the monks who run their monasteries as attaches to the government. Okay. Um, that. They were the ones that you can always see the VIP jeeps going by and they've got the fancy monk in it. And that's not true Buddhism for at least my friends. Um, And that's not where, you know, where we are in Mandalay. It's, It's a much different climate, if you will.
1: But do you think that's the position of the majority of practicing Buddhists in the country? Or is that a minority opinion that, like, you've met some very cool people who don't want to be part of this, but actually majority of people in the country are with these sort of more populist style monks.
4: I would say the former, I would say they are 98% with the, not the populist monks. Okay. Um, I would definitely, I mean, there are, there are issues and populist issues the way there are in the United States that um, prejudices and any population that seems economically threatened um, and can find a scapegoat or be given a scapegoat by the government is probably more than likely to to be susceptible to some of that argument um, and you can 't go through the country and not hear these stories that seem complete they 're just too good to be to not be fabrications of disrespects that Muslims do to Buddhist especially novices who are the innocent ones that you know they'll break a novices bowl or, or Run them over with a bike or something. Um, and I think that's just stories. i don't I don't actually believe them. And I don't think many of my friends do either.
2: So I'm curious, how do stories like that spread? Because in Sri Lanka, um, right, there's just been some criticism of Facebook over their handling of hate speech. In Sri Lanka and Facebook and, and other social media were shut down for a while, um, and then other folks have been critical of that and sort of said, "You know, it's not like this is just the work of social media, but it's actually the work of people."
4: Mm-hmm. Like st- literally, like coffee shop or tea shop storytelling. Yeah, I think yeah, that's how, that's how most of it gets around. Um, well, but also, I'm, sure that,
1: uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You finish. No, 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 no. It.
4: Please. Uh, right, and I was going to. I was just going to say um, about the Facebook. I mean. Again, trusting the reactions of most of the people I know, they they are always siding with Aung San Suu Kyi with, with in terms of uh, Facebook posts and claiming solidarity to her um, and trusting her. I think they have to decide who they're going to trust. And um, they've cast their lot with her, for good or bad. Um, and she's, she's an imperfect person and she's she's awfully fra- I was within two feet of her, and she just looks she's just so frail and so small um, and yet the emotion that uh, we, were, we were in a crowd when she just passed by, and the emotion of the crowd you're just in tears like everyone is in love with her and they're all Mezu, gemma baé mezu gemma buzzé and it's just like incredible and she's being jostled and people are trying to touch her and it's just an incredible um, person um, to again, all the hopes of the country have been put into her.
1: But if you were to turn that around another way, I mean, what you know like here i'm this is just a, a thought experiment, right? I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. we have this mm-hmm. remarkable leader who you know has led the country into a democracy, supposedly, um, and who was under house arrest for all these years, just like you in the as you explained in the piece that you read. Um, yeah. But if you were to remove that past, right, and you were to use the description that you just said—that all the people have put all their hopes in her—that's the classic definition of a populist leader. I mean, when when Trump says, "I am your voice," <laughs> right, in yeah. his, in his, um, what was that? His, was that his inauguration speech? Right. Yeah. Uh, that that is the like kind that. of thing, right? That 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 that's, that that frightens me a little bit. I mean, you think, okay, hopefully she's going to do well with the Rohingya here, and she's going to be a fair leader, but. It's still like that deification of the leader is is to me a frightening proposition. At least it it, it puts so much at risk. Yeah.
4: Sure. Um, what is the option? I mean, the option is they give her a complete clay feet in the military. Then Sane becomes the hero. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the option is for her or for the country.
2: Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like she's still a really important face of any sort of resistance that there is, but it's, I didn't, I don't think I quite realized. Um, and it's, I think even if I read about it, it's helpful to hear you really emphasize it from the point of view of someone who's seen the place that, you know, for example, the, just the physical remote, the remoteness of the Rikin state from the rest of the country, um, the notion that there's this huge leadership void after her Um, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, to take your Trump analogy with, I mean, like what, Mike Pence? um, I just, like, what is, what would happen if she were not there? Um, So that's hard to imagine. It's also interesting to hear you talk about sort of what Buddhism means in this context, right? Because I think you could talk about Myanmar, you can talk about Sri Lanka, you can talk about Malaysia, right? Like there are places where sort of like the way that son of the soil rhetoric is kind of mobilized against any group that is um, smaller, that is, you know, a convenient convenient target, a convenient scapegoat for people in power to consolidate their gains, to strengthen the military, to um, talk about ways that anyone who perceives themselves as, you know, the native population that everyone sort of perceives themselves as having the most having the most rights, um, which is not how rights, rights work, um, right? Like all of those things, like, I, I don't know, Malaysia is an interesting counterexample because there you have, um, right, a Muslim majority and, which is in some ways, um, I mean, I was there as reporting over 10 years ago, but I mean, I remember reading about sort of Hindu religious sites that were at risk, um, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was actually sort of a similar dynamic, but I think that especially as Americans it's easy for us to think about the ways that majorities are sort of just that nationalism is centered around religion, but religion's just a vehicle it seems like um like the We're way identifying that you to the-
1: out you know i mean Turkey's the same way you know they do yeah. the same thing with the Kurds you know um and and, and so that you know that's another different sort of it's it's just a way of, define, of defining the other uh you right. know po- poland was doing this is doing the same thing in a way it's related to the discussion we had last week with uh with jim shepard and and Danielle Evans about uh, about the school shootings about groups you know the the, the it's it 's a national version of like a, a group of school children selecting who 's going to be the outsider and then mm. punishing and, and separating themselves from that person i think it 's important to point out and i 'm using some statistics from a story from hannah, hannah beach who 's been writing for the New York Times uh, about uh, this issue uh, this is from an october twenty fourth two thousand seventeen story. Just to get a sense of the size of the scale of what's happened with Rohingya, I mean, she says that, uh, you know, more than 600,000 have been driven out of the country since late August of 2017. Uh, and that there are still about 120,000 confined to camps in central Rakhine and tens of thousands more in desperate conditions in the north. I mean, that's that is a lot of people. This is a gigantic scale uh, yeah. issue. Um it, and it's, It seems still to be happening. It, that's what's. That's where it's hard for me to understand how that cannot be admitted into the public mind in in a way. Or is it known? I mean, do people know this is happening? Do people in Myanmar talk about it? Do they understand the scale of the problem? where's See, there
4: I will be. Control I will be news? able to tell you. Yeah, I don't know. I'll be able to tell you that in April um, when I go back. But I haven't been since. The, the jettisoning of all the people, um, but yeah, Hannah Beach should be winning a Pulitzer for those articles. I think they really brought it's Just they are incredibly reported and well done pieces. Whitney, I just want to go back to one thing, like the Trump thing. It's right. It's um, it but you want to almost hope that Aung San Suu Kyi would be the philosopher king of Plato's you know Republic, where it's what and she. I don't think she has. She is. It's not an equivalent to Trump. It's just
1: well. I mean, I she has <laughs> she has a background that seems you know, that is somewhat different. She wasn't a jerk real estate developer who devoted her entire life to screwing people. You know, I mean, she obviously had political commitments to the greater good yeah. at a certain point in her life. So that does make her a different figure. But still, what she's become now is somewhat worrying, especially given the size of this crisis and this and her silence on it.
4: Yes, I agree. Yeah.
2: And I want to go back to um, you mentioned Hannah Beach, and that does sort of lead into what I was going to ask, Bill, which is just sort of um, who you would recommend that we read on it. And I think the other thing that I'm thinking about inevitably as I read is um, the fact that I have a friend who talks about the fact that writing is – I mean, what kind of action is writing? I mean, right, we talk about politics in the news on this show, and we talk about what we write about, and we talk about what other people write about, and sort of what is the gap between writing and action? And I mean, what does it mean? I can't. I, I mean, I would be really curious, and I think a lot of journalism is taking a turn towards this. Sometimes there's sort of this the first-person piece afterwards where it's like, what was it like for me to write this piece in which I could write about the story of this person who I met and who I turned out... Turned out I cared about them, but the only thing I could do was write. And after that, nothing happened that improved their life.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, right. I mean, there's this sort of um, I don't know. I mean, I think I've been I've been reading those articles and looking at those pictures, but it's not like that makes me a better person. And also, I mean, right. I don't know. Like, I just it's is this like, your what argument it for why no know? one should
1: listen to our podcast, Sugi?
2: <laughs> This is my argument for why I need a stiff drink really after good. recording the podcast. <laughs> um, I just – I don't know. Like, I you know, I think I wrestle with this all the time. Kind of the question of um, – I don't know. You can look, right? Yeah. But yeah. first of all, like at what point does looking turn into a kind of – right, like goodness porn? Like, oh, well, I know about the Rohingya. Yeah, I'm, I'm – my awareness has in some way – um made me better, which I don't know that it does. I just, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that perhaps I just get to sit with my feeling of inadequacy and that's fine. Um, but did but international
1: yeah. attention, this is something that, Bill, you could answer. I mean, uh, didn't international attention have something to do with Aung San Suu Kyi's eventual release from her house arrest?
4: Yes, and that's the- – so engagement, that's that's maybe the only good thing that can come of writing, I would think, is that sense of engagement where you can bring foreign places to your back to your world with you um, and give them in a place in a, in a way that other people can sort of approach them or encounter them um, or be or share your experiences. That's And it's the only thing I do well enough to to try to do in the world um I when I go there I'm the same way so yeah I I try to teach I started a pre-collegiate program for students that in one of the monastery schools and not Mandalay so I I'm trying to do that as well um so it but it's the age-old thing of like to do versus to write about about people who do you know so it's um I, I agree it's it's a frustrating place sometimes and especially if the writing isn't going that well um, or you're not quite sure what you want to say, which is sometimes what I feel as, as you keep going there. Um, but I would read, uh, like, I think, the Roger Cohen pieces in the New York Times. He had a, a group of um, op-eds maybe three months ago that were stellar and nuanced and gave both sides of the issue and deepened the mystery and didn't try to solve anything um, and didn't try to blame Aung San Suu Kyi about her position um, there's a, there are a few older books. Um, Finding George Orwell in Burma by Emma Larkin is kind of terrific. Um, people, if you ask people, many of them still think that George Orwell is the national the, the explainer of the country. Um, from Burmese days to Animal Farm to 1984, Like that's his Burma trilogy, they think. And it explains for them uh, the country to a large degree. Does uh, that you
1: mean is that western readers or do the, do the western, Burmese it, think this as well?
4: The a lot of the Burmese do as well. They have their national writers of course, but um they they think he was pretty fair, fair fair-handed and that Burma pretty much shaped him into who he was. Ah,
1: um, huh, that's really interesting. That you know, is interesting. Can
4: take, you tell us um about any of the national
2: writers just like a couple of names?
4: There are poets. There's um, the grandson of that Utant, um, who is the U.N. general. He is, I think he lives in New York City now. Um, he wrote a, a book called River of Lost Footsteps, which is kind of great. There's a writer, um, uh, there are a bunch of poets. Um, I was, I've been doing some translation work with my teacher, and so we're doing some of these, On i Aung Chiemt is one name that comes to mind, Um, and a lot of uh, folktales and a lot of, um, I I read a lot of um, religious, not texts, but lectures by different Sayadas, so Weibu Sayada, there's a Sayada Yotish outside of Mandalay right now, um, who just bring the world to you and, and through the Buddhist eyes and tell stories.
1: And there's a brand new, uh, Sugi, you flag for me a brand new novel from a, I guess, Burmese American writer that was like published a couple days ago. Um, we'll put a link to that at the show notes because I don't remember the title right now. Do you have that?
2: Her name is Charmaine Craig. Okay. And I think it's called Miss Burma. All right. right. Bill, thanks so much for joining Fiction Nonfiction today. Um, Bill Lichak, you can check out his novel, The Wasp Eater, and his story collection, The Architect of Flowers. And we will link to his article um, from Myanmar on our webpage.
1: Thanks so much, you guys. Thanks for being here, Bill. We really love talking to you. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the News tab. And you can always find us on Facebook at FNF Pod or on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading.